Welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. Today's programme is about the British colony of Hong Kong. Hong Kong officially became a colony under the British crown in 1843 and ceased to be a colony when it reverted to Chinese rule in 1997. Rather than try to cover a century and a half of colonial history in half an hour, we're focusing our conversation on one governorship, that of Sir John Pope Hennessy, KCMG, who was governor from 1877 to 1882 and one of Hong Kong's most colourful and controversial rulers. A Catholic and an Irish nationalist with a Eurasian wife, Hennessy was an unusual governor. His liberal and reforming ideas quickly made him unpopular with the colony's European population and mistrusted by the colonial office in London. Eventually, he was engulfed in scandal. Yet his governorship coincided with important developments in the colony, the growing strength and influence of Chinese merchants, and improvements in education and the environment. To talk about Hennessy's Hong Kong, I'm joined by Elizabeth Sin, Dwayne of Hong Kong Historians, whose most recent book is Pacific Crossing, California Gold, Chinese Migration and the Making of Hong Kong, and by Christopher Munn, the author of Anglo-China, Chinese People and British Rule in Hong Kong, 1841 to 1880. And I just realised you stop your book in the middle of the Hennessy governorship. Yes. We'll have to ask you why in a minute. So Hennessy came to Hong Kong in 1877. Can you give us some sense of what the place looked like at that time? What kind of place had he come to? I think if we have to use one word to describe it, it was a very prosperous uh, port. Uh, Of course, geographically, it was a very uh, safe port as well. Where Central is today, uh, already quite a lot of um, large stone buildings owned by the firms, and as you walk towards the west, you also see shops and companies, firms owned by the Chinese merchants. And what is actually also very spectacular is if you look towards the hills, a lot of the hills behind Central and what we call Saiyingpun today uh, would have been built up as well. Mm. So it's it's a very built-up, very uh, fairly sophisticated uh, uh, city. So this is the town that was called Victoria. Right. The uh, development was mainly on Hong Kong Island. Right. So Hennessy gets off the boat wearing his beautiful governor's robes, feathers in his hat and so on. Um, Chris, tell us a little bit about where he'd been before, because Hong Kong was only actually quite a short episode in his in his career. Yes. Uh, he was an Irish Roman Catholic, and he was born in Cork in Southern Ireland to a fairly humble merchant family. And he trained as first as a physician and then as a barrister, uh, went to London and became the first Irish Roman Catholic Conservative MP, mm. uh, which was an unusual choice because he was also an Irish home ruler and the Conservatives at that time were not noted for their uh, interest in that subject. He was an MP until 1865, and he lost the election and also ran heavily into debt and needed to be rescued. His patron was Disraeli. He was also friendly with some of the other senior members of the party. They found him a colonial post in one of the most godforsaken colonies in the empire, Labuan, which was off the coast of Borneo, uh, a a disease-ridden, quarrelsome place. Uh, He was there for four years, up to 1871, 
Then he was moved to an even worse place, the British West African settlements with his headquarters in Sierra Leone uh, for a couple of years. Allegedly, he was the cause of the Anglo-Ashanti War that followed his governorship. (laughs) Then he was in the Bahamas for a year, a peaceful time, and then in Barbados for a couple of years, uh, where he riled the colonial establishment uh, and again allegedly was was the instigator or at least the cause of what were known as the Federation riots where the blacks uh, rioted in his name believing that they were acting on his instructions. Then he moved to Hong Kong. He was <coughs> sent here uh, because he was expected to have a peaceful time. It was believed to be well governed uh, in Whitehall, and uh, they thought he needed a rest and that he would be able to uh, have a have a peaceful time. Now, the the, the causes of all of his uh, troublemaking were were idealistic, and and they were in some ways commendable. Uh, he was an egalitarian; he believed in equality between races, and this was the source of all of the trouble. Okay, and we'll want to develop that idea later. But I know Elizabeth, you wanted to make a point about. Hennessy and Chris Patton. Right. I mean, the fact that he uh, was in Parliament and then he lost his elections, right? And he lost in the elections and he was given a colonial post. And I thought, well, also the fact that uh, he was a Roman Catholic. Mm. Uh, (coughs) And later, when we're going to talk about Hennessy's relationship with the Chinese people in Hong Kong, uh, we will see that he actually raised the expectations of the Chinese people here, and they felt a greater sense of entitlement, and they felt that they had, uh, they should be treated much better, and, and so forth. And you, you described Hong Kong f- at the beginning as prosperous. Right. Right. Are we looking at a prosperous local population? Well, of course, the merchants were very prosperous. Uh, Hong Kong was doing a terrific trade. The, the merchants were starting to get... Uh, the Chinese merchants especially, uh, were starting to do really well in the mid-60s and 70s. The um, the scale of the trade was getting larger. The value of the trade was getting larger. There was more diversity in the, in the trade commodities. They were getting into shipping and finance and so forth. And um, they were getting to feel rather important about themselves. Would it, would it be right to describe these merchants as Hong Kong people? Or are they moving back and forth across the border, um, along the many coast? Many of them have their business headquarters in Hong Kong. Mm. Some of them would have some properties in China. Many of them would have, have their first wives, their you know primary wife mm. in China, with concubines in Hong Kong. So I would see them as having a sort of multiple homes, but Hong Kong would be one of the important homes. Um, we have some Chinese who had come back from California or from Australia. Mm. So there was a very mobile population. However, I would argue that the merchants saw Hong Kong as a place that they enjoy living in and certainly for making business, right, for doing business. So it's a, it's a trading town. Oh, yes. Based on yes. the seaport. A prosperous merchant class right. move, moving around right. doing both local and international trade. Right. I'm Very global, actually. Mm. Yes. Um, and then a, a large proportion of the population would be poorer people. Right. And you have, but this, 
it was not just a sort of a, a division between the re- really rich and the really poor. Mm. You have uh, Chinese. Actually, I think this is an important point: is that you have the manual laborers or the people who did what we call coolies who were. Uh, pulling rickshaws and things like that. Mm. But you also have uh, clerks. There were artisans. There were a lot of mechanics. And later, actually, you have more. Mecha- well, they, 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 you had you needed a number of mechanics to keep certain industries going, like the shipping and so forth. Mm. Yeah. So there was a middle class, right? And um, certainly, under and the schools were really important agencies for these change. And the Chinese in the school, Chinese students learn to speak English. Uh, for some of the colonial administrators, this was one way of producing enough clerks to work in the government. But right. of course, they went out and they did other things. And some of them did work for the government, but some of them made money while working for the government too. And others went out into the business world. So there was, there was quite a bit of mobility, uh, social mobility. Um, the, there was... Apart from the Chinese, you had the European or the non-Chinese population. There's a lot of segregation. Um, and the segregation was not only along racial lines, but also along class lines as well. So you mean segregation in terms of where, where people got to live? Got to live, so whether they mix <clears throat> in socially <clears throat> and so forth. And so the, the Chinese kept, on a large, uh, to a large extent, away from the non-Chinese. And within the Chinese... The, the the class hierarchy was very clear cut, yeah. very clear cut. And then, of course, within the non non Chinese uh, groups, the the class lines were very very clearly drawn as well. So, for instance, the China, the Hong Kong Club really would be only for the very wealthy uh, British and maybe a few other Europeans. Yeah. But no Chinese. No Chinese and no non Chinese no. of a lower class. Right. Yeah. And no, presumably, Indians and oh, no, such? No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> right. Elizabeth, tut tuts. Right. Um, so uh, one reason why we explained that Hennessy was a controversial governor, and a lot of that seems to have had to do with the way that he behaved, thought of and behaved towards the local Chinese population. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, I want to ask you... Um, First of all, if you can, what was the norm in in British colonies in a place like Hong Kong, maybe Singapore and so on? Um, what was the colonial policy um, having to do with governing a, a non-European people? The norm, or at least the ideal, was possibly as Hennessy wished it to be, which was, as he described it, perfect fair play and justice for all. And the colonial government or the colonial office back in London tried to promote this, albeit in a very half-hearted way. And it was more passive, perhaps, than energetic. Every colony had its own circumstances. Some were more close to that ideal than others. None were very close. And Hong Kong was perhaps further away than any. Uh, The main reason was that it it was seen as a special case because it was on the edge of China. It had a very mobile population among the labouring classes, the coolie class, as it was known. They would go back and forth seasonally. Uh, They had no attachment to the ideas of British rule or the institutions of British rule at all, except possibly to the prison and the courts. Uh, 
Um, the leading figures in, ch in the Chinese community were Hennessy's real targets. He wanted to assimilate them to British rule, to, to bring them across uh, to, the, to the British system and to make them belong to the colony, which was something that his predecessors had really not tried to do. But the problem with Hong Kong was what one of his predecessors had described was this moving mass of vagabondage which came across on the Canton steamers for work, for crime, for entertainment. It was seasonal. It was often just for the weekend or for public holidays. Was the border open? Did, yes. Did you, need to, you didn't need it's, a passport. It's completely or... open, uh, but there was a kind of quasi-immigration control which mm. revolved on deportation. So there were lots of facilities for deporting undesirable people, uh, not necessarily through the courts, and there was a system of getting rid of uh, prisoners, people who had been convicted, by cutting short their prison sentences, uh, tattooing them on the ear, uh, on the earlobe or on the neck, and sending them away and telling them that if they came back, they would be put back in prison and they would be flogged and they would be given additional sentences. It didn't work because people came back half a dozen times, eight times. There were cases of people coming back ten times. And this was something that Hennessy wanted to attack and address. The, the non-European population had no representation in the formal organs of government. Even the white or the European population didn't have much. Uh, the councils were dominated by officials. The executive council was entirely composed of officials. This was a crown colony. And Hennessy tried to stop this, or at least tried to modify it, by um, bringing in uh, one... Chinese member of the Legislative Council, the first ever in Hong Kong, Ng Choi, Wu Tingfang, later became a great statesman, a diplomat, the mm -hmm. uh, first foreign minister in, in the Chinese Republic. Uh, he was appointed to LegCo in 1880. He was also appointed as a magistrate for a few months in the same year, uh, and this caused some disquiet, uh, not just in the European community, but even back in London and in Parliament. Right, right. And um, the appointment of Choi was um, opposed by many in the European community, and one of the questions raised was, what would his position be if Britain went to war with China, and he was Chinese, and could we trust him? And I think this is one of the really important points about Hong Kong as a colony, and that is it was so close, or it is still so close to China. So that is one of the... Uh, problems that um, is inherent in Hong Kong, I think, in all his, you know, now. Was it part of the, the brief of a colonial governor to, to deal with the, with the neighbours, with, with, the, um, with the Chinese government, or at least with the provincial government next door? Um, no, actually, it was the foreign office's um, responsibility to deal with China. The problem with Hennessy was that he would like to deal with China, and he did deal with China. And one of the reasons why he felt that he should deal with China was that he thought that China should be treated with more equality than it had been. So he interfered with a lot of things that which, have, which would really be part of Sino-British relations. And the Foreign Office was so angry with him, and they told the, col the Colonial Office to try and hold him back. And the Colonial Office couldn't do anything because he's one of the most um, uncontrollable governors. <laughs> The other thing that he did in Hong Kong, I think, as far as the Chinese 
were concerned was to give the Chinese merchant elite a lot of face. Mm-hmm. And one of the groups of Chinese elites in Hong Kong was the Duma Hospital. And, um, they were f- the Duma Hospital board was formed by the wealthiest and the most powerful merchants in Hong Kong. And Hennessy uh, gave them face by visiting them, visiting the hospital itself, by inviting the board to his um, to the gov- government house, and very often he listened very carefully to their requests and, and um, petitions, and he responded very well to them. And he kept telling the Chinese merchants what a terrific job they were doing, contributing to Hong Kong's wealth. And so I thought I, I, that was really important in making the Chinese merchants feel good about themselves and the sense of um, their contribution to, to Hong Kong, right, and their sense of entitlement. And this is where I think uh, Patton, uh, the comparison with Patton comes in. So it was a sort of a mutual admiration club. The, um, the Chinese flattered Hennessy, told him what a great governor he was, and Hennessy told the Chinese merchants how much they were, how much good they were doing to Hong Kong. And one of the issues that came up was the Muizai question. Now, mm. the Muizai were, is, is part of a very long Chinese practice. Muizai literally, the word itself means a little girl. But in history, the Muizai was a girl who had been sold into a family to work as unpaid, um, unpaid uh, a servant. So, it could be interpreted as a kind of slavery. It was practiced quite commonly in China because very poor families very often were unable to feed all the children, so they would give their daughters away. And these daughters would be given to wealthier families. The, ch- the, the child would be expected to work for the family even from a very young age, onwards, four, five, six mm-hmm. But the family would be expected to feed and take care of the child and at a certain age marry her off to a good family. So it was there was an obligation there on both sides. On the one side is to give away the child and never try to contact her again and the family that took the child in was supposed to take care of the child although they would be able to have her service, right? So ideally, it was one way of saving poor girls from being drowned or just abandoned. And many Chinese would argue this was, in fact, a charitable act, that the rich families who took the children in were actually being charitable. Now, in practice, however, the, the, the child could be abused in many ways. She could be sexually abused by the men in the family. She could be sold off at some age as another as a muizai again or as a prostitute or as given away as concubine. So she, she was actually possessed a possession, a property mm-hmm. of the family that took her in. And because there was so much value in women's bodies, basically, um, a lot of women were being kidnapped. Little children were being kidnapped to be sold as muizai. So there were a lot, a lot of different uh, abuses involved there. And in the 1870s, the abuses multiplied. And the uh, one of the judges in Hong Kong's mail said that, well, we must try to stop this trade in girls, because mm. as long as you have the trading girls, they will be kidnapping and they will be feed- selling girls as prostitutes. And the Chinese 
uh, population felt that, well, we've practiced this for a long time, and we don't think that the practice itself should be abolished. And they argued that this was a charitable act, and they felt that the thing to do was not to abolish the practice itself, but to prevent the abuses. They should try and prevent kidnapping. They should try. They should punish the kidnappers, and they should make sure that women were not sold as prostitutes. And so they proposed setting up an institution called the Bolango to make sure that these abuses would be prevented and that people would be punished. Right? Hennessy thought about this long and hard because he knew that he wanted to support the Chinese community. He wanted to be on their good side, but at the same time, he did not want to support slavery. So it's a bit of a dilemma. For oh a, yes, that for was a, a real dilemma, government. right? Yeah. So in the end, he decided to support the Chinese community. He wrote to Lord Kimberley, who was the Secretary for Colonies at that time, made some very clever, twisted argument on why this was <laughs> this institution should be set up. Kimberley wrote back and said, "Well, I'm not really sure whether we should do that." And Hennessy wrote back and says, "Well, thank you for agreeing with me." <laughs> so he basically twisted everything around. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the most amazing things about Hennessy. This, I mean, this was true of a lot of governors, but the fact that he could manipulate the uh, instructions from from London. Sometimes, when he received instructions, he just put away, put them away in his drawers, and did not deal with them for a long, long time. At, at this time. The, there's undersea cable, is that right? So that they're, yes. they're communicating f- not immediately, but quite rapidly. Yes, with, we're usually within 24 with, with hours. The colonial office. So yeah. the colonial office can keep a close eye on, on To the some government. extent, but the, the telegraph was expensive. Yeah. They didn't use it very much. And mm. Occasionally yeah. it, it, it was sabotaged because people would, would steal the underwater cables. <laughs> and uh, it, it was it was usually dealt with by dispatch. It was only urgent matters right, and right. things that needed instant. Okay, stealing the underwater cables gives, gives me a segment. I, I wanted to ask you a bit about crime and law and order because this is one of the things that where he intervened most um, enthusiastically. Hmm. Can, can well, you say something about that, Chris? This uh, <coughs> there was English law in Hong Kong. Uh, and, and it was very similar to the English system, except on a smaller, reduced scale. There were trials by jury, but the magistrates had a lot more power than they would have done back home. Uh, Elizabeth's already mentioned Chief Justice Smale, and if anybody in the colony was more extreme than Hennessy and more unpredictable, it was this man, Chief Justice Sir John Smale, the, the man who fought a campaign against the Muijai system, but who also insisted on equality, uh, at least in his own court, the Supreme Court, and did a great deal uh, on behalf of uh, those accused of crimes to ensure fair trials, to make sure that procedures were followed and to to promote impartiality. But the real uh, criminal justice was at the lower level, and this was dealt with by the magistrates. Uh, They had uh, powers of fining and imprisonment and certain powers of flogging, although they didn't actually use those very often in, in the 1870s. It was mainly in the prison where all the flogging was going mm. on as a punishment for prison offences. And uh, the, um, the prison was the centre of a great deal of brutality and uh, it, it was a, a place that had, to some extent got out of control mm. 
And Hennessy noticed this. He, he was bound to notice it anyway because he'd noticed similar things in Barbados and other places. And he'd introduced reforms. He'd abolished flogging. Uh, he'd uh, tried to put justice back on its English tracks by insisting that prisoners should serve out their sentences and by sending people accused of the more serious crimes up to the Supreme Court for trial by jury. Now, the crimes we're talking about would be a robbery, a certain degree of piracy, although that had been to some extent stamped out, a lot of snatching in the streets, snatching of earrings from women, uh, child kidnapping, uh, trafficking in children and women, and the usual offences of larceny, of theft, and so on. But there are also special colonial offences that applied only to Hong Kong, uh, and these included breaches of the night curfew, which existed for Chinese inhabitants, breaches of the opium monopoly, and various other specific crimes that, that really had no role in English justice generally. Hennessy did very little to change that. And in fact, a lot of the minor offences uh, increased during his time because he was trying to milk the revenue and plant trees as well. So there are a lot of people <laughs> prosecuted for cutting down trees and shrubs. <clears throat> so he's, a, he's trying to introduce liberal reforms but with limited success and presumably some of these reforms get overturned anyway as soon as mm. he's gone. Mm. Um, Chris, I know you want to talk to us about Hennessy's umbrella. You have about 30 seconds. Can you do that? <laughs> <laughs> the scandal that um, Hennessy overtook him. And you had, should mention his personality too, really. Yeah, well, Hennessy was a... Very quick. Was a had a beautiful wife, um, Kitty Hennessy, Kitty Lady Hennessy, who was part Malay. He'd married her in Labuan, and he was seven, she was 17 years younger than him. Uh, Hennessy was also a friend of one of the leading lawyers in the colony, Thomas Child Haler, the Queen's Counsel, who was a natural ally. He was an intelligent man, a fairly progressive man. He'd been involved to some extent in government. But he was also a rather predatory womanizer, and he was known as such. <laughs> One day in the summer of 1879, Hennessy finds Haler in Lady Hennessy's boudoir, showing her a catalogue of indecent prints from the secret museum in Naples. He banishes Haler from Government House. He withdraws all of his patronage of Haler. He previously recommended Haler mm. as Chief Justice. And this simmers on quietly for a couple of years until in April 1881, Hennessy encounters Haler on his daily walk around the peak and he starts hitting Haler with his umbrella. It's not clear why they're, they're, the, the details are very unclear. Haler, who describes Hennessy as a uniquely insignificant man grabs the umbrella and mounts it on his mantelpiece in his house on the peak. Uh, he then complains to the Secretary of State in a, in a series of letters to London but then withdraws the complaint because the quarrel is to some extent patched up. But later on in that year, in 1881, the gossip gets around. Hennessy encourages his private secretary, Eitel, later the historian of Hong Kong, to start showing the correspondence on the subject to various people. Haler institutes an action of slander against Eitel. Uh, that is eventually patched up. It shows all of them in a very bad light. It's described as a, as a pitiful affair, and no, nobody benefits Eventually, it leads to Hennessy's transfer out of Hong Kong. 
Haler disappears because he's disgraced. Eitel loses his job, uh, but survives beyond that. Okay, on that deplorable note, <laughs> we've run out of time. We have to bring this to an end. So, uh, Elizabeth Sin, Chris Munn, thank you both very much indeed. <laughs>